0: Our scripture for this morning is Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 18. Would you read along with me? Here we go. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray... Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of our Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. Well, it's great to be back Uh worshiping with you today. Thanks for praying for our families. We are gone for a couple weeks, and uh, today we're going to jump into uh, where we are in the text today, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 18, on the subject of motives. And uh, I hope that you're ready to um, receive some internal work by the part of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. So let's get to work. Let's pray. Father, we um, thank you that you have given us a sure word in your scriptures And that you um, want to be able to address the inner workings of our soul. You want to give us right motives. And you want to make us people who are really righteous. And we thank you, Jesus, that that would never happen, could never happen without you. And so we want this text, again, Jesus, to drive us back to you, remind us of the danger of our own hearts and how quickly things that were intended to be about you can become about us and that's how the pharisees and the sadducees and the scribes were and it's what jesus is getting after so help us lord today to watch our motives when we pray when we fast and for that matter when we do anything that's in any way religious pray you'd help us lord in jesus name Amen. Matthew chapter 6 introduces a um, pretty powerful word to us, a single word. The Greeks, you need to understand, loved theater, and they thought it was just commendable when a man or a woman could stand on a stage and convince an audience that the story on the stage was real when it wasn't. The Greeks thought it was a pretty amazing, a a pretty impressive gift if a person on that platform could draw a crowd emotionally into a story, and that story wasn't real. To be able to move people when you're just an actor was a highly regarded gift. In fact, the Greeks had a particular word for that kind of person. It's the Greek word hypokrites. from which we we get the very loaded and unpopular word, hypocrite. You see, the word used to be something very positive, and then over time it came to refer to those who believed something, or rather said they believed certain things, and then they lived differently. Have you ever been called a hypocrite? It's a painful charge. It means that you're accused of having virtues or morals or beliefs that you say you believe when you really don't. It means that you say one thing, but you do another. And it's always a very painful thing to hear, you know what, you're a hypocrite. Or maybe you've heard it this way, the church is full of hypocrites. You ever heard that? I like to say to people, although I only have the courage like once or twice in my lifetime, when someone says that, at the church is full of hypocrites. My comeback, and you've heard me say it before, is, well, why don't you come? Because we can use one more. You know, so that's that's not usually kind, though. <laughs> to be called a hypocrite means that they accuse you of not being real, that you're fake, that you're phony, that you, you talk ahead of where you really live. And what Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says is that when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. It's the first time this word shows up. And when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. What Jesus is targeting here is people whose religious practices are fake, they're phony, they're pretend, and they're all for show. And Jesus is down on people who try and help other people think that they're spiritual when the reality is they're truly not. And what we see here is that Jesus once again identifies that true religion, real righteousness, at its core, means that you are the real deal. Remember that Jesus' target in this Sermon on the Mount has been to expose superficial religion. Jesus is... attempting to help us understand that superficial religion is a phony system of spirituality whereby we make self-worship out of what was supposed to be God-worship. It's a sick thing, where we take the things that were meant to point people to God and we involve ourselves in them, but with a view of really making ourselves the ultimate object of our worship. And what Jesus is trying to do is to show us here what real righteousness is. And in order to do that, he has to expose hypocritical actions. So in chapter 5, we saw the way that he exposed it in regards to the things that you do, the sins that you do or don't do. And Jesus went through a whole list of things, explaining that if you say, well, hey, at least I haven't committed adultery, Jesus would say, really? Because you've heard it said, of all, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already in his heart. And what Jesus is driving at is there are things that we think that we do or we don't do that make us righteous. And superficial religion, this idea of this phony, fake religious system, doesn't just happen. But rather it is planted in the soil of self-deception and self-justification. And I suggested to you that sounds like this, self, um, self-deception. self Hey, I don't have a problem. Huh, I'm not, I, 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 I am not that big of a sinner. Or self-justification, where, hey, at least I've never murdered anybody. And Jesus says that superficial religion comes out of this soil. And over the last three weeks, we've heard about lust and anger and divorce and getting even and oaths and turning cheeks. And what Jesus is doing is targeting The what problem, what we do, the sins that we do. And he's driving to another level down to the heart. That it's not just what you do physically, it's what goes on inside of the heart. That's what real religion, real righteousness is all about. Now in chapter 5, or chapter 6 rather, he introduces a new angle where he now is addressing the how. Not just the sins that we do, but now he's addressing the how of righteousness. So you might think, well, alright, so we got to the heart of these sin issues over here. Jesus now turns to the acts of righteousness that you may think that you do, like giving and praying and fasting. And he's not only concerned about what you do, but he's also concerned about how you do it. And the target that Jesus has is that he wants us to see that superficial religion happens when we do the right things with the wrong motives. So it's not just that you're doing sinful things. No, the problem here is more sinister. It's sneaky. It's more treacherous. It's a fake righteousness where you do the right stuff, but you do it for all the wrong reasons. So if if you thought that chapter 5 was difficult because it took sin and brought it to a new level, here it takes righteous acts and it brings this to a new level. So that means that just because you came to church today doesn't mean you get a sticker from God. Just because you give doesn't mean that it's necessarily righteous means that you could give a ton of money away. You could involve your life in all sorts of unbelievable acts of of, of serving other people and do it and have it work nothing for you in terms of your relationship with God. You can literally waste your time, your money, you can waste your life while being religious. In fact, this fake righteousness can actually be more dangerous than outright sin. And here's why. Because outright sin creates this sense within the person that they're guilty. But the person doing righteous deeds with the wrong motives may feel, in fact, that they're actually righteous when the reality is they're doing it for self-glorification. So sin, by virtue of these overt acts and a wrong heart, leads to self-glorification. And so does righteous deeds done with the wrong motive. Both are the same thing, just a different side of the coin. And that is why the word hypocrite is such a powerful word. What it does is it captures the disgusting practice of making the worship of God into the worship of self. And the reality is nobody likes hypocrites. Nobody. God doesn't like them, we don't like them, the world doesn't like them, so we can all agree hypocrites are bad. The only one who likes hypocrites is the devil. And so what Jesus is calling for here is a different level of righteousness that has God in its focus and allows for the worship of God to be what it's designed to be, the worship of God, not some weird, perverted, self-centered self-worship that seems like it's worship of God. And that's what Jesus says. Look at chapter 6 and verse 1. Here's the principle. Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So Jesus isn't down on practicing righteousness. No, he's against practicing righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from the Father who is in heaven. So let me state it very clearly. Here's the single thing that we're going to center this whole text around this morning. It's this one thought. It's this. Motives matter to God. Say that with me. Motives matter to God. Say it again. Motives matter to God. Listen to me. In your car, on your dashboard, some of you, like I'd have in one of my vehicles, has just simply a speedometer. It measures how fast you're going down the highway or down the street. It's something that you monitor so you don't break the law. Or so when you're breaking the law, you know how far you're breaking the law. So you watch that particular um, little dial on your dashboard. But some of us have another dial on our dashboard, and it's got a little RPM thing by it. It's called a tachometer. And that that, that measures the rotations of the engine. It tells you how fast the engine is running. So one um, gauge tells you how fast the car is going. Another gauge tells you how hard or how fast the engine is going. And when I was pulling a camper last week, I not only watched my speedometer, but I also watched the tachometer to be sure I'm not working the engine too hard. So as I'm going down the road, I'm watching two things, my speed and also how hard the engine is working. And when it comes to righteousness, there is not just one gauge. What are you doing? There are two gauges. What are you doing? And you ready? And why are you doing it? There are far too many evangelical believers that think it only matters what I do. It matters that I'm involved in all these things, I'm doing all this service, I'm doing all these things for Jesus, and they don't realize that they could be wasting their life, that it's only it's not just about one thing. Dial, it's about two, not only what I'm doing, but why I'm doing it. Do you know that you can do amazing, wonderful, beautiful ministry things for God and have it actually be sinful? Because it's about you. And what Jesus is saying here when it comes to prayer and fasting and also giving is that motives matter to God, that real righteousness, real religion comes from the heart and religious actions have to be done with the right motives. So, this passage is loaded with all sorts of stuff. I want to give you three warnings that come from this passage about prayer and fasting. The first one is this. Prayer is a platform for intimacy with God, not the exaltation of self. Jesus says about these hypocrites, verse 5, They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus addresses here the potential sham of public prayer. He's not saying that all public prayer is bad, but he's saying it's potentially dangerous. Especially if you're concerned about what people are thinking about you as you're praying, rather than thinking about what God is thinking about you. The religious leaders loved to pray in environments where people, by their praying, thought they were spiritual. So the synagogue was a a place of worship, um, remote from the city of Jerusalem. And oftentimes, in the midst of those services, some leading man would be asked to stand and pray. And Jesus said, the scribes and leaders and Pharisees and hypocrites they love to stand and pray because when they pray they're praying not to God they're actually using God to give them what they want which is the affirmation and praise of others therefore they love to pray in the synagogues so people will perceive them as spiritual it also says that they love to pray in the street corners now this I found interesting street corners why street corners what is it about street corners and the various authors had variety of ideas, but a couple of them, I think, gave a suggestion here that I found to be really interesting. They suggest that what Jesus is talking about is the fact that committed religious Jews prayed at particular times during the day. So there's particular hours during the day that they were called to prayer, that they had to stop and pray, and they suggest that the hypocrites would actually order their day such that at a particular hour, they know they would be on a busy street corner. So that as they came to that street corner, they'd be like, Oh my goodness, look, it's three o'clock. It's time to pray. And they'd stop and they'd pray. And they happened to order their day so that when they were at the appointed hour for prayer, they could be seen by lots of people. It's disgusting. They took something that was supposed to be about God, something supposed to draw their hearts to the Lord, and they planned how to be in the right place at the right time, not to give God glory, but instead to rob him of glory. The real problem was that this prayer, this prayer life was supposed to be about intimacy with God, but instead it became about the exaltation of self, it's supposed to be about intimacy with the Father, but instead. It became about how people can think that I'm spiritual. So that's why Jesus says in verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He says here that to pray like this, to have this mentality of prayer, is to miss the essence of what prayer is all about. The key word there is secret and father. That Jesus is saying the essence of prayer is private communion with God. That the audience of God is the focal point of prayer, not people. And what Jesus is saying here is that the hypocrites have an audience problem. They're more concerned about the people who are watching them pray or seeing them pray or hear them pray than they are about the God who they are praying to. And prayer was supposed to be this moment of great intimacy between a man and his God or a woman and his God and instead they pervert it and make it a platform in order for people to think they're really spiritual. He also says you to pray to your Father who's in secret. Here, here's a, a, a new term. You're probably familiar with it because of the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, but you need to know that in Jesus' day, people didn't pray, Father, our Father. They didn't talk to God like that. It, it, it's a, a, a term that Jesus uses and thereby even allows his disciples to use a term that's loaded with love and affection. It, it speaks of a level of concern. And so he says, go in secret, private, and then pray to your Father. There's supposed to be this level of intimacy and closeness. So what Jesus is talking about here is that prayer is supposed to be this platform for intimacy with God, not just this place where you can exalt yourself. It's supposed to be a place where you remember that motives matter. So when it comes to prayer, Jesus wants us asking this question, Who am I talking to? Am I talking to God, or am I talking to the people who are listening to me pray? Now the second thing about prayer is this, that prayer is a statement of simple dependency, not the means of divine manipulation verse 7 and when you pray do not heap up empty phrases as the gentiles do for they think that will be heard for their many words do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him in verse 7 jesus talks about the folly of thinking that god is going to do what you want him to do because of how long you pray In fact, what's going on here is that the pagan Gentiles thought that they could manipulate their gods into doing what they wanted the gods to do if they just kept praying over and over and over. And so they they, they used long prayers or incantations in order to somehow move their god into action. They, They used these long prayers in order to get their god's attention because they thought that they would be heard because of their many words. And the real thing is a desire to be heard so you can get what you want. When I, when I was reading this passage, I couldn't help but think of um, my trip to India last year. We were at a seminary, and next to the seminary was a Buddhist monastery. And when I woke up one morning and was going to go for a run, I, I heard the monks praying, and it was a kind of a scary sound. Because across this wall, in this kind of this hidden monastery, the sound of... These prayers were coming out. It's like... That's pretty good, isn't it? (laughs) It's actually what it sounds like. And uh, and, and this, this monastery had prayers going on all day long. And at the end of our time there, we got a tour of it. And I found that it wasn't just the sound of the prayers that was different. It was that the people were in bondage to try and get their God to hear them. In fact, there was a room uh, next to the uh, main temple, and in this room is this, this big wheel, it's like a big top, and this guy would, would, would walk around it uh, and pull it, and he would spin it. And as he would spin the top around, as he walked around it, he would be offering various prayers, and then as he came around the loop, he would ding a bell. So you get this environment where we're, we're in this this this, uh, this this monastery and this guy's walking around having all these prayers and he's like and you're walking around and you're just hearing this this constant recitation of prayers over and over and over. And then on the back side of the property there was this um, this line that was stretched out between the trees and It almost looked like someone was hanging up their laundry. And I ask them, well, what are those? And, and it's not their laundry, those are prayers. And they post them up and hang them on the, the wire in order to hope that their gods will hear them. And, and when you're in that environment and you hear this, wah, 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 ding, 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 and these prayers, there's this, this sense of bondage that these people are trying to get their God's attention to get Him to do what they want Him to do. And Jesus says, don't be like that that the focal point of a disciple of Jesus is to remember that your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. Look at what He says in verse 7, verse 8. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask. In other words, prayer is not about manipulating God into action. It's not about informing Him about what we need. You know what prayer is? Prayer is a humble statement of my need for God's help. It's supposed to be that while I'm praying, that I'm declaring, I need you and I love you. And my intimacy with you is really important, and I need your help in my life. So, Father, would you help me? There's supposed to be intimacy and secrecy and this sense of, of God knowing what we need and this urgency in our hearts to be able to ask God to help us, not that we manipulate him into doing what we want. All of that to say that motives matter. And Jesus wants us to look at our motives and ask ourselves, Why am I praying this way? Why am I praying about this? Who is the focal point of my heart when I pray? Is prayer an expression of my desire to glorify God? Or is it an expression of me wanting to glorify myself? And is there this sense of relationship and intimacy, Father and closeness, that's the heart of this request? Or is it I want this to be about me? Jesus says, when you pray... You say, our Father, who art in heaven. Father, closeness, intimacy, personalness. When um, we were camping this last week, or two weeks ago, um, weather was decent, and the raccoons were amazing. <laughs> At this particular State Park, there's raccoons that, I mean, they have no fear. And they're fat because they steal your food. And there was one night we we're having a campfire, and between here and the piano is the picnic table. And um, the raccoon, this close, gra- climbs up the top of the table, takes the whole bag of marshmallows, and runs into the r- runs into the w- woods as three brothers-in-laws and myself are running after it. You were spears and clubs, get him, get him, get him! <laughs> and and, and it, you couldn't leave anything out. And one night, I uh, t- towards, towards twilight, I sent Savannah back to the camper to go get something, she wanted a blanket or something, I said, it's in the camper, and she went back, and about that time I realized, you know, it's getting kind of dark, I wonder if there's raccoons over at our place, and no sooner had I said that, I'm sitting in my chair, you know, that little Nirvana moment, just enjoying the campfire, and all of a sudden I hear, Daddy, help me, and I knew exactly what was happening. I jumped up, grabbed anything I could find, and ran over the campground. Sure enough, there's a beady little-eyed raccoon about three feet away from my daughter. I'm throwing flip-flops at that thing, anything I can. I'm like, you get out of here, you ugly little... And I have raccoon rage filled within me. Because there is no way that raccoon is going to touch my little girl. She called, Daddy, help me. And I am right there. I know exactly what she needs. In the same way Jesus says... That relationship with your Father is one God knows what you need. There's intimacy. He is moved to act, not by the long list of your prayers or all of the things that you say. He is moved to act because of His love through His Son that He has for you. And therefore, Jesus says, don't make prayer about yourself. Don't make it about manipulating God to get what you want or about somehow being concerned of what other people think of you. Then he talks about fasting. Fasting is about creating an appetite for God, not for fulfilling a hunger for applause. Look at what he says. We'll come back to the Lord's Prayer in a minute. He says, And when you fast, verse 16, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, what these religious leaders wanted was they wanted their internal hunger. They wanted people to know what was going on that no one could see. And so therefore, they disfigured their faces. They they looked gloomy The religious crowd that they wanted to attract, they wanted those people to know that they were hungry and that they were fasting because they really wanted the approval of people. So they missed the real point of what fasting was supposed to be. Fasting was supposed to remind them that more than anything they needed God, and the crazy thing is, is they were using something that was supposed to remind them about their need for God, and they used it to fulfill a hunger for people's approval. You see, fasting is supposed to create a greater appetite for God. It's supposed to remind you that that God is more satisfying than a juicy steak, a, a brownie with ice cream, or a piece of blueberry pie. It's supposed to remind you that God is more satisfying than all of those things. And what they did is they used a religious activity to actually feed their heart in a different way with the approval of people. Jesus wants us to see that the applause of others is garbage compared to the banquet of God's approval. And the question that Jesus would want us to ask is this, Why am I doing this? Again, it's not just what we do. It's not just the one dial. It's a two-dial system. Not only what am I doing, but also why am I doing it? And what Jesus is saying here is that prayer and fasting are commendable spiritual activities, but we have to be warned about the real possibility, the subtle slide of self-glorification that can creep into even the best of spiritual disciplines. Listen, the secret of religion is religion in secret. Motives matter, folks. They matter. So, Jesus then gives us the Lord's Prayer. He says, when you pray. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on the Lord's Prayer, and the reason for that is I think that Jesus gives it to us as uh, an example of what real motivations um, should look like, how we ought to be able to balance um, uh, our our prayers. It's it's meant, yes, to be an, an outline of how we could pray. Yes, you can recite this prayer. But the point of why this is here is to support the idea that motives matter. Let me show you this. Notice the balance here between a vertical and a horizontal focus. There's three things that Jesus says we ought to pray to God, and there's about himself, and there's three things that we ought to talk to God about in terms of our need. And notice the balance between vertical and horizontal. He begins with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Meaning, Father with whom I have intimacy, I want your name to be glorified. I want you to be exalted. I want you to be lifted up. Then he says, your kingdom come, meaning I want the values of heaven to be expressed on earth. I want what you love to be done in my world. And then he says, your will be done, which means I want you to reign here on the earth. I want your reign to be extended into the world in which I live. So all three of these petitions are really this burning desire to see God honored on earth as he is honored in heaven. And notice the focus that begins with an upward attention of God, I want you to be known. I want you to be exalted. I want your will to be done. And then he talks about, give us this day our daily bread, which is simply a very basic request, Lord, for the daily needs that I have in order to survive, provide for my needs, meaning everything I have comes from God. Lord, forgive us our debts in humble acknowledgement of the need for forgiveness. And then also, lead us not into temptation. What does this mean? It means, Lord, Father, I am weak and I need your help to avoid situations that would contribute to the devastating effects of sin in my life. And so I need you to guide and direct and lead me away from, don't lead me towards tempting things, Lord, lead me away from those things. And the balance of the Lord's Prayer is this, that there's both a vertical and a horizontal focus. And that's the right perspective, that there needs to be a vertical orientation of our hearts. What does God think about this? Or, God, what is your will? What is your desire? What is your yearning? And how does that relate to my world and my life? The second thing that I want you to see from this, in this particular prayer, is the focus on attitude in approaching God. Just really quickly, there are two statements. The first is where he says, "...your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." We've already talked about this with these first three things in terms of praying to God about his will to be done on earth. But what it means is this, that God, I want you to be honored in my world. I want you to be honored in earth and on earth like you are in yours. It is a humble, God-centered perspective. It's an attitude of, I want to exalt you. I want you to be known on earth as it is in heaven. That's the attitude with which I approach my intimacy, my quiet time, my prayer life with you. I want you to be known in the earth like you are in heaven. And then notice verses 14 and 15. It's a strange addition. Look what Jesus says. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Why is this here? You know why it's here? Because what Jesus is saying is this. Is that people who have experienced the beauty of God's grace and forgiveness are going to forgive others. Meaning that when you come, the question is, as you come into God's presence, whose sin is on your mind? Is it other people? What is the focus of your heart as you're coming into religious activity? Is it your need of grace or is it other people's need of grace? And what Jesus is talking about here is the kind of attitude that demonstrates, I know how big my need is, and those who've tasted of God's grace are more than willing to dispense grace to other people. That there is this attitude of humble God-centeredness that flows throughout the Lord's prayer, And also flow throughout Jesus' instructions about the fact that motive matters. That there isn't just one thing, not just what you do, but it's also how you do it. It's not just if you pray, but it's how you pray. It's not just if you fast, it's how you fast. It's not just if you worship, it's how you worship. You see, pride and God-centeredness do not coexist The approval of man and the approval of God are competing values. They fight against each other. And what true religion is, is true religion springs from the right heart, the right motives, and it worships the right object. And the person who tries to play games with religious actions who thinks that they have really got a righteous sticker from God because they've come to worship or because they sing songs or because they give money away. If the motive isn't right, they're nothing more than a hypocrite and in a worst-case scenario, actually a traitor because you're using things that were meant to point your heart to God and you're using those things to worship yourself. And Jesus says, don't be like that be real now Jesus talks about prayer and fasting but really the bigger picture is he's talking about what it means to do religious activities how do you how do you serve in such a way that God is honored how do you sing in such a way how do you give how do you do anything And be sure that it's not about you. Because Jesus is just using prayer, fasting, and giving as three examples. The, The idea of motive mattering is a bigger deal than just about those three things. So I want to give you three applications here of how this needs to work out across the board. Here's the first one. It is that God's glory is the ultimate aim of everything, especially religious activity. And we have to continually remind our hearts about this, especially if you're involved in full-time ministry or you have something that you do in the context of this church where you're able to pour your life into others and people's lives are changing and great things are happening, you have to continually remind yourself this is not about me. Because this sick subtle, sly, and devious thing can happen where over time what used to be about God can become about you. God's glory is the ultimate aim of everything. Why were you created? Why are you alive? What's the purpose of your life? Why was the cross even necessary? The answer to all those questions is the glory of God. What's the purpose behind Sunday worship? What's the goal of giving? Why serve as a nursery worker, as a youth ministry leader, in the choir, as an elder, as a deacon? What's the goal of foreign missions, a vision trip, the Brookside Initiative? What's the goal of every song, every sermon, every Sunday school lesson? All of these things, the goal of every single one of them is the glory of God. And that means, listen, that means that if you don't do things for the glory of God, they're actually sinful. And that's the tragic irony of what could happen, that you could invest your entire life, give lots of money away, um, somehow use your gifts and, and talents, and it could seem as though you were doing it for God's glory, when the reality is it could be only for your own. Therefore, anything done in the name of religion, anything that takes place that seems religious for any other reason other than the glory of god is treachery it's sinful it's a covert act of self-worship and so we have to continually remind our hearts this is about the glory of god not me here's the second thing pious people or religious people people who are doing a lot of really good things need to work hard not only on what they do, but why they do it. The first question we could ask ourselves is, am I really pursuing righteousness? The second question would be, am I pursuing this for all of the right reasons? So we we have to get to motives. We have to be very careful that we do things with the right intentions. I, I don't enjoy hanging around name droppers, do you? People that talk a lot, so and so, and I was talking to Mitch Daniels the other day, and I uh, yeah, said, so, uh, okay, you know, it's a big deal, you know, so, but you know, you know what happens spiritually? People do that. Drives me equally crazy. Couple examples. In my devotions this morning at 4.30, I was uh, reading, <laughs> you know, during my 30 minute prayer time with my wife this morning, we were praying about, or, um, this is one of my favorites, you, your Sunday school teacher or your pastor is giving you, quoting you a verse, and you, you throw in, hey, isn't that in First John 3, 1? Just to let everyone know that you know chapter and verses, like they're like, oh, oh that's okay. <laughs> or, here's one, you know, in my third discipleship meeting for this week, I was telling this friend of mine that, and there's subtle little ways that we drop in little badges of righteousness, because we want people to know how active and busy and, and how how righteous and, and, and fulfilled we are in serving Jesus when the reality is we drop those things in because we want service of Jesus to be a mirror that says something about us, and it happens so easily it 's so subtle it 's so easy and it 's so wrong. About five years ago, at my previous church, I was getting ready to do a sermon series on the subject of idolatry, which was providential because of the story I'm going to tell you. And I got this whole series ready. I was ready to go. I was very passionate about it. And I wrote this sermon and it was, it was, it was good. I mean, it was ready. And, and and I was so, I was prayed up. I was ready. And it was the first Sunday in January and a massive snowstorm hit. I mean, just 8, 10, 12, I don't know how many inches, but it closed the city down. And, you know, we didn't cancel services. And as I drove up, I thought, you know what? There's hardly going to be anybody here. And I worked so hard in this sermon, worked so hard at getting prepared, and I was frustrated inside that the snowstorm was going to diminish this moment. And as Sunday school took place first, I noticed that there was like, felt like, like seven people were there. There's like 15, maybe. And I'm sitting in the back of the Sunday school class, listening to the person teach, and I was like, you know what? I can't, this is what I'm thinking, I can't start this sermon series this way with this few people. In fact, I, I it's, it's not a good idea. I, I I can't start it with this, with only like 30 people. It, the whole church needs to hear it. And so I went back to my office, and I took my sermon out of my Bible, and I went through it, And I pulled out an old one and put it in my Bible. Went back to class and it's like there. That's better. Because after all, this sermon needs to have more people at it. And as I'm sitting back there, the Spirit of God, not speaking directly to me like an audible voice, but I just have this overwhelming wave of conviction that's just like coming from my toes all the way up. And this this little voice kept coming into my head. What's the number, Mark? What's the number? I got up, was so convicted, I went back to my office and I sat in the couch and I began to talk to the Lord and I said, what do you mean, what number? And there's like, I just had this conversation with the Lord. How how many people is that sermon worth, Mark? Is it a 30-person sermon? Is it a 70-person sermon? 80-person sermon? 100-person sermon? 150-person sermon? How many people are worth that particular sermon? And then I realized it was on idolatry. (laughs) And guess who had an idol in his heart? I remember weeping in my office that I wasn't willing to give my message to the Lord regardless of the number of people in the room. And I got back up. And I preached my guts out to 30 people about the wickedness of idolatry (laughs) and how it can affect, and I told them the story. I share all of that with you because it is so subtle. It is so sneaky. It is so easy. You can find all sorts of ways to justify it, and ministry and serving Jesus can become about you. And Jesus says, Don't be like that. Here's the final one. The heart is the target of the gospel and the essence of true religion. Why do I put this here? Here's why. Because it is devastating to realize that real religion is not just a list of doing good things and not doing bad things. Real religion is more than just doing the right stuff. Real religion deals with the desires of the heart, the intentions, the motivations. Those are all of the things that are in play, and that makes God's righteous standard doubly difficult. Listen, God is not interested just in what you do or what you don't do. He's also interested in the heart that it came from and why you're doing what you're doing. And if you get this, you'll have an overwhelming sense of, oh my goodness. It's not just what I do, but it's why. It means that all the good things that you do are absolutely worthless and even offensive to God if they're not done for the glory of God. And that is devastating. And yet, at the same time, there's an amazing amount of hope because the essence of true religion is the target of the cross. It's hopeful because in the cross of Jesus, God made a way for my heart, for your heart to be changed. The target of the gospel is the heart, and the essence of true religion is the heart. Meaning that God makes it possible for the heart to be right, so that right motives could even be possible. So even the day that you serve and you've got right motives, don't go home and say, Ha, I had right motives today, thanks to me. The only reason you have right motives is because of the work of Jesus in your soul. If you were left to yourself, you'd take God and the worship of him and you'd make it about him, about yourself, every single Sunday. Everything you do would always be about you. And the only reason it doesn't happen that way is because of the glorious work of Jesus. So the message today should not leave you hopeless. Instead, it should help you to see the beautiful reality of what Jesus makes possible. He makes, listen, he makes real religion possible. And that means that for some of you who are convinced that the church is full of hypocrites... Who you raised in a home that was hypocritical from the very beginning to the very end. That it doesn't have to be that way. And the only way for your heart to be right is for you to repent of your sin and come to Christ. He can change the thing that you cannot change, which is your heart and your motives. Several years ago, Walmart ran a series of ads featuring their commendable service projects in the community under the banner of good works. Remember that? And while it may have made for good marketing, it actually isn't true. Good, just for good sake, doesn't work. Doesn't work. The answer is, Jesus works. Jesus works so that my work can be good for the glory of God. Jesus works within the soul of a person so that the thing that I do can be done for the right reason. And Jesus' whole point in this is that the world doesn't need any more hypocrites. We have seen enough of that. Getting real means that we really understand that when it comes to real religion, motives, motives matter to God. And so remember, it's not just that we have one thing. what, What do I do? But it's also why I do it. And Jesus says real religion is not only doing the right things, but also doing them for the right reason. And that's why he came, to make right reasons possible. For the glory of God. So Father, I pray now that you would help us to understand and know the motives of our own hearts, the reality of our own condition, and how easily we can be swayed from doing things that make much of you to things that really end up making much of ourselves. And I pray, Father, that you would deal with us in this regard, that we would not serve ourselves by serving you. And I pray that as we leave today, that our hearts will be filled with a renewed desire to do things for the right reasons, in the right way, for the right purpose, to the right God. So, Lord, help us to preach this truth to our hearts all the time, especially those of us who are involved in ministry. Oh, God, help us. Help us to do it for your glory and your glory alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.